Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. We're doing something a little bit different today. We have a guest joining us from San Francisco, Noah Smith. Noah grew up in Texas. He studied physics in college. He was an economics PhD student at the University of Michigan. He was an assistant finance professor at Stony Brook University in New York State. He was then an economic columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, left that in 2021 to become a full-time blogger, although he had been blogging, I think, for about a decade prior to that. The blog is called Noah Opinion. I would strongly recommend to all our listeners to check it out, subscribe. It's absolutely fantastic. He covers economics, politics, finance, technology. An interesting fact about Noah is that he believes that rabbits are an underrated pet. And he lives in San Francisco with two rabbits, Cinnamon and Constable Giggles. Noah is also a self-described techno optimist and it's on that note no i'd like to start off in the economist today there was an interview with yoval noah harari and i'll just throw a quote at you he said that ai has hacked the operating system of human civilization and storytelling computers will change the course of human history as a techno optimist how do you respond to that great let's uh let's see what they can do that's pretty much my response. It's um, I don't know about the metaphors of the operating system of human society. I don't really know what that necessarily means, um, which is not a criticism. I do think that, you know, large language models, chatbots like GPT-4 or, or whatever, you know, they'll change a lot of things because a lot of what we spend our time doing is sort of talking to each other. That will, that will change. Also, 
those those machines will provide a way for us to tell computers and and robots and all you know mechanized systems what to do simply by talking at them. So instead of having you know, having to actually write code and essentially write the instructions of what the machine should do, you say, "Hey machine, create a window on my screen that looks like this and you know has this in it." And the machine will just do it. It'll understand your language very naturally. And it will be able to convert that into some sort of, you know, computer code, write that code and execute the code in a way that you want. Or suppose you're using a robot in a factory. Uh, you can say, hey, robot, you know, bring me that part from over there. And the robot just knows which part to bring you and knows sort of how to do it. And I think that this is going to change the way we use technology because we'll be able to talk to technology the way we are trained to talk to each other. So I guess maybe if that's the operating system of human civilization, you know, we we talk to each other to tell each other what to do and we understand our, our own language and linguistic instructions, at least some of the time. And I think computers will now be able to do that. And that's a big change. Uh, I think one of the underrated possibilities that that people are not thinking about yet in connection with this technology is that this will make technology accessible to people who are much less technically trained. So right now, you have to, to use computers effectively or to use robots or to use anything technological. You essentially have to think like a simple machine and you have to write lines of code, you know, open your text editor, write lines of code in a language and then compile it. And that requires you to essentially do machine part instructions in your head before translating them onto the page and telling the machine to do them. So you, uh, I think that has really given a lot of advantage in our society to people who have the capability to think like machines. And now through the magic of large language models, I think we are able to, we, we will be able to skip that step of forcing ourselves to think like a machine. I think people who are not very good at thinking like a machine will still be able to use machines and I think that early evidence already points to this happening. So I think that's a big underrated change that people aren't talking about. That there is obviously a lot of debate and disagreement. You know, I, I've seen you write about Noam Chomsky, Tyler Count, people like that who have very different views. Jeffrey Hinton, who's just stepped down from Google, has been saying a lot of negative stuff, really, about AI and ChatGPT over the last few days. You are very much on the, the positive side of the debate. I actually do agree pretty strongly with Tyler Cowan on this one. And he has also been on the positive side of the debate and been fairly harshly critical of the people who want a pause in AI research. I think that his arguments are persuasive and the arguments of people who don't want a pause are persuasive to me. And, you know, I don't want to put words in people's mouth, but to summarize those arguments... I think the first argument is that many people will not pause. So if you make a pause, that simply cedes the field to the people who refuse to pause, which in this case is China. Researchers in other countries, these people aren't going to follow the US if, if we declare a pause, even if we have an ability to do that. I think the second, the second argument is that we don't actually know what these technologies are capable of yet. So to pause simply delays the day when we find out. And if we pause for six months, AI research, we won't necessarily be able to figure out things that would help us make AI safer within those months. Because after the AI research resumes, changes will happen that will invalidate the findings we found during the pause. And so I don't think, I think a pause is not particularly effective in this case, because it will essentially just delay the day when we find out what the new technology is capable of and are thus able to design effective you know, safeguards on the technology. 
Also, I think there has been a great muddle in terms of what the danger is from AI. I think that most people, when you talk about AI, including uh, Jeffrey Hinton has talked about this, they will talk about the danger in, as in terms of replacing human jobs. I don't know so much about the, the details of the technology of AI, only the basics, but I do know a bit about the economics of, of you know job replacement, things like that. And I think that not only is that threat overblown, but it also is not the kind of thing that's amenable to a pause. So if you pause, if AI is destined to make humans obsolete, which I don't think it is, but if it is, then pausing for six months and giving humans an extra six months before they go obsolete is not going to do a damn thing. And so I think that is effectively useless. Now, the other danger that people talk about from AI is, you know, sort of the technology going haywire and inflicting harm upon humanity via, you know, nuclear launches, bioweapons, financial fraud, sowing social division. You know, there's a, a bunch of ideas that people have for how this could happen. And I think that a pause there would, it, that would, you know, I mean, preventing the destruction of humanity for six months is a useful thing to do. And I don't actually know whether or not, you know, AI will destroy humanity. I think the current crop of AI will will definitely not destroy humanity. That's not a thing that could happen. But I think that we might reach relatively soon an AI that could by adding a bunch of stuff that the current AIs do not have, such as the ability to act as a perpetual agent that's always sort of on and thinking and acting. Various other things we need to add in order for it to be able to do that. You know, we need to connect it, have APIs to connect it to the financial system, and we'd have it have to be able to like synthesize voices and make calls and basically have be extremely multifunctional. I think that the we can see that it can do those things. But the question is, would a pause make us safer from that? And I think what makes us safer from AI trying to screw with our, our systems, our you know technological and weapons and finance systems and these things, what makes us safer from that is having it done in a small way and building safeguards to it. So if you, if you watch the Terminator movies where the AI wakes up and launches nukes and destroys humanity, it's the first thing it ever does. When the AI, the minute the AI comes online, it thinks, oh my God, humans are threatening me. And the first thing it does is launch a global thermonuclear war. We must absolutely not hook up AI to any sort of weapon systems, especially weapons of mass destruction. You know, if it's like some little drone or something that could just cause an accident as the worst thing or, or kill a civilian or something, maybe, I don't know. But then I think that hooking up AI to the nuclear weapon systems is a very bad idea. And we should, it, there, there seems to be a high likelihood that AI will do small bad things before it does the big bad thing that kills everybody. And we'll see it do that and we'll understand how it does that and we'll come up with countermeasures for it. We'll know not to, you know, we'll have, we'll have changed the way our phones work so that they don't just trust, you know, voices from trusted people or we'll, we'll have some way of verifying that a phone call comes from the right person or we'll have some way, we'll, we'll just add verification systems for communication so AI can't deep fake its way into tricking people to do things. We'll implement stricter controls on biological, you know, synthetic bio kits that you can get at home. We should be doing that anyway. But I think one pretty consistent thing we've seen is that human beings as a group, not individually, but as a collective group, are very, very, very good at finding ways to destroy other human beings and doing that for stupid, crazy reasons of our own. We're very good at that. If Ted Kaczynski mailing bombs because he's concerned about the environment. I mean, that's crazy. You'd have to work to get an AI that crazy. <laughs> or you have, you know, terrorists doing 9-11 or, or whatnot. And we already have, we, we've been implementing safeguards to, 
you know, guard against nuclear terrorism, theft of nuclear materials, things like that for a long time. And we probably have to update those safeguards in the age of rogue AI. We'd also know AI doing small bad things would also tell us where the rogue AI is coming from, who made it, how to, how it works, how to stop it. You learn about bad things by bad things happening. And that's just sort of an unfortunate fact of the world. You know, it's um, you can't learn about bad things by having a, a few internet enthusiasts sit around and dream and ponder ways that things could go bad. You don't learn much because there's so many possibilities that they can dream up that you don't know which possibilities are more likely. The way you know which possibilities are more likely is by having AI do some small bad things and figuring out, oh my gosh, a small bad thing happened, like crashing car, right? You know, you can sit there, I can sit there and think of ways that a car could crash or that AI could accidentally crash a car, but that's essentially useless compared to testing AI at low speeds, we're in a non-fatal situation or in a safe situation, watching it crash and then saying, okay, why did it crash? That's how engineering works. A pause just makes a, delays the day when we will start that process of learning how the machine can crash. Thank you, Noah. I'd like to move the discussion on from tech in the interest of time. We could talk about it all day and ask you to briefly comment on a piece that you wrote recently about the slow banking crash I think you called it. We've we've had three banks now fail in the United States, the second, third, and fourth largest in US bank failure history. Each one has been described as a one-off. It's self-contained. It's not going to happen again. Everything's okay, we are told. It strikes me that the from a behavioral point of view, the business model of these banks, which was to essentially, and I oversimplify a little, to bet on low interest rates, staying low forever was clearly wrong. And if three of them have done it, there must be more, surely, aren't there? They all have to some degree. Yeah, that's right. So the way they did this primarily was to pay, was to do two things. Number one, they bought long-term bonds and the banks that failed bought many more long-term bonds than other banks. So the large banks that we have like Chase or Citibank are their ability to buy a lot of these long-term bonds is reduced by the regulation that we implemented after the global financial crisis and after those banks almost failed because they're systemically financially important. But during the Trump years, we changed that law so that banks of the so uh, of a slightly smaller size, the size of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, both of which just failed, are allowed to do a bunch of risky stuff. And, and unfortunately, we changed that regulation um, at a very inopportune time. And so... Those banks bet heavily on interest rates staying low by buying long-term bonds. Because remember, when interest rates go up, the price of bonds goes down and the price of long-term bonds goes down a lot. That is why those, those bond portfolios took a hit. The second thing they did was in order to keep making a profit margin, they did not pass along higher interest rates to their depositors so that if you had a savings account at Silicon Valley Bank or at, at First Republic, it was still only paying you 0.2% interest in an era of 4% interest rates. So you were losing, they were setting your money on fire. That is an invitation to deposits to leave. Remember that banks collapse when their deposits leave and when you can't pay them out. So when your value of your assets goes down, uh, because interest rates went up, so bond prices went down, it means that you can raise less cash to pay your deposits. So that makes it more likely for a bank to collapse. And in addition, having depositors want to leave, not because of panic, but just because they're not getting a good rate of return on their deposits is another incentive for depositors to leave. So the era of high interest rates created these incentives for depositors to leave. And in March, we saw that happen very fast to three banks. The idea that First Republic Bank, so First Republic Bank officially failed this week, 
But really, it was it failed due to deposit outflows that happened in March because it acknowledged those deposit outflows in its quarterly report. Its quarterly, it, the first quarter does not include April. Really, when we're talking about, you know, you think it's one after another because the news stories come one after another. But in fact, these all happened at the same time. When we talk about a one-off, we don't mean a one-off in terms of one bank doing bad business models. We mean there was a big outflow and then the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury came in and basically backstopped deposits. And so we haven't seen... We have not seen banks fail since that event. We may. There's there's two banks that are quite wobbly, Western Alliance and Pacific uh, West Bank Corp. And those two banks are much smaller. They're about $40 billion in assets each compared to $200 billion for both Silicon Valley and First Republic. They had some deposit outflows, not as bad. They may also fail. It's not clear. Since the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury backstopped uninsured deposits, we haven't seen other bank failures. So I think that the idea that, oh, they backstopped the deposits and yet we're still seeing one after another of these bank failures. No, those happened at the same time. However, that said, there st- the, the incentives for deposits to flow out of the banking system remain. And the only way that banks can keep money in the, keep deposits in, in the system and strengthen themselves uh, by keeping deposits in the system, the only way they can do that is by raising the interest rates that they pay to depositors. And the easiest way to do that is to simply make the depositors more aware of the high interest rate savings account alternative that they already have called a money market account. So they can do that, which is also FDIC insured. It's basically just better than a traditional savings account in every way. And banks have been, frankly, a little dishonest in letting people keep their money in traditional savings account when the money market account is what the traditional savings account used to be. It does pay you interest. So banks can do that. That just weakens the value of their business because that means they don't make as much of an interest rate spread. The spread between these, their bonds or their loans, whatever their assets are, the interest rate that those pay the banks and the interest rate the banks have to pay their depositors goes down. So that, that difference goes down and then banks get weaker in terms of profitability. So banks have to sacrifice profitability in order to survive. That will happen and it will also reduce lending because that will make them cut back on risky long-term loans. And it'll just make them cut back on loans in general to sort of preserve their, their cash just in case depositors want to take money out. That decrease in loan activity will cause either a recession or something like a recession in that it will decrease aggregate demand. It, it will decrease lending. It will decrease the amount of money flowing into you know, people's pockets and businesses' pockets. And it will decrease the amount that people and businesses spend on things, which will decrease which will hold down inflation, but will also cause a slowdown in economic activity, which is probably what the Fed wanted in the first place when it raised interest rates. In other words, this is kind of just how monetary policy works. This is this is how we slow the economy in order to quash inflation. Is it not the case that, yes, the deposits flowed because they weren't getting any kind of return on those deposits and they had a good alternative for the first time in a long time? But it was also the case that perhaps slightly smarter depositors worked out that the losses on those bond portfolios had on paper, technically, maybe rendered the bank's capital ratios skinny to the point that they were technically insolvent. And so there was a, there was actually a solvency worry as, a, as well as a chase for yield. Sure. Yes, absolutely. So the chase for yield uh, is the thing that is still in action. So the solvency worry was there. It's no longer there because if you have, if your bank is 100% insolvent and if your bank's assets go to zero tomorrow, it doesn't matter a bit to you because the government has guaranteed your entire deposits now. You will not lose a penny of your money. Your money is fine. Who is responsible for maintaining the, 
you know, the, the paperwork that gives you your money will change um, as it changed with First Republic being acquired by J.P. Morgan. But as a depositor, you're in zero danger from your bank going insolvent. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So um, why wouldn't the feds just simply say, okay, rather than going through all that rigmarole, complicated stuff of... The, the deal that was done with JP Morgan, because there are all sorts of cross guarantees and l- loan loss sharing potentially going forward. It was a pretty complicated setup. Why didn't they just shut First Republic and give everybody a check? Because that is annoying and disruptive. I mean, if your bank account vanishes and then you get a check and then you have to go find another bank, open another bank account and deposit that check, that is annoying and disruptive, possibly even scary. Um, but certainly would disrupt normal economic activity. Whereas if instead now you just have a JP Morgan account and your account just switches to a different bank, that's very easy and smooth transition. So you think that today's Federal Reserve interest rate rise is probably the last one? That's my guess. I, I think that they will raise interest rates to the level they said they would raise interest rates to. And I have to go check to see if this gets them all the way there, or if they need one more hike. Um, I think this gets them all the way there. Mm-hmm. Where either they're close, and the point is that the Fed places an extremely high premium on its credibility, and people who don't, people who want to predict the Fed, need to understand that fact first: is that the Fed credibility over everything. If the Fed goes back on what it says, then it feels rightly or wrongly that that will crush its ability to make monetary policy work in the future. So it places a huge premium on credibility. It will raise interest rates a little too high, if that means. Not a lot too high, but it will raise interest rates a little too high, even if that means hurting the economy a little too much just to preserve its own credibility. Noah, could I just ask you about, um, you've written a lot about globalization, free trade, industrial policy, as Chris mentioned in recent days. Since 2016, I guess, you know, we've seen Trump, we've seen Brexit in the United Kingdom. Uh, There has been a definite backlash against globalization and the impact that free trade has had. How do you assess the globalization agenda at this juncture? Is it irreparably damaged or is is this just a blip in a long-term trend? Globalization in terms of trade as a percent of the economy has been going like down at a gentle rate since the global financial crisis of 2008, which is now 15 years ago. Weird to think that, right? It was such an epochal event. Now it's 15 years in the past. So the global financial crisis happened a long time ago, but but and globalization has been shrinking slightly since then. What has happened in the last decade is an increasing series of steps to to break up 
some of the specifics of the old trading regime that prevailed during the 2000s and early 2010s. So people think this started with Trump and his tariffs on China, but in fact, it did not. It started with China. In the early 2010s and mid 2010s, Xi Jinping starts, although the plans were laid out in the Hu Jintao administration, but Xi Jinping comes in and basically decides to execute all these plans to move China up the value chain by onshoring production of high value components and building brands, which is, you know, just good for Chinese companies and value capture, et cetera. And also to start securing supply chains for the purpose of national security. The idea that we don't want our supply chains to get disrupted in the event of a war is something that Americans are thinking of now and that China was thinking of long ago because they were actually thinking about the possibility of war much more, much earlier and much more seriously than we were. And so China, because they would start it. And so China started making efforts toward decoupling long before. Then you have, of course, everyone knows the story of Trump coming in and slapping tariffs on China and all these sort of sometimes haphazard attacks against China that were then kind of refined by the Biden administration. The Biden administration kept many of the tariffs, kept and expanded export controls a lot and kept investment restrictions through CFIUS, the, um, the committee that reviews Chinese investments. The Biden administration preserved or extended many of the Trump administration's efforts toward decoupling and then um, and added on a lot of its own and now is adding another layer, which is industrial policy. Trump didn't have really industrial policy beyond yelling at companies to put factories in the United States, which didn't work. Biden has passed the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and those two bills together basically promote two industries, the semiconductor industry and the clean energy industry. And those two industries are the focus of our new industrial policy, and that's going to add a layer. And in addition, on top of those things, Biden has come up with this concept called friendshoring, which in practice is going to mean putting factories anywhere but in China, and this concept of de-risking. So, you know, I know we don't have that much time, but let me take a minute and say why de-risking is the right word for this. Uh, Companies that put all of their manufacturing in China are in an existential danger from a war over Taiwan or war over anything, South China Sea, anywhere. The minute that the United States and China start shooting at each other, the value of direct investments in China, of factories in China, goes to zero. It goes poof, because you won't be able to get your stuff out. You certainly won't be able to get your capital out, but you won't be able to even get your stuff out. Maybe even not your people out. And so if all your manufacturing is in China and there's a war, which is not something, and because the war would be started by China, that's not something that American business people can even you know, they can yell at America to like be peaceful and reasonable and blah, blah, whatever they want all day. But Xi Jinping is not, just not listening to them. And if he wants to start a war, he'll start a war. And the United States will fight it uh, if we if we get attacked. And that's just how there's no way that's not going to happen. And so so everyone now realizes that being in China poses an existential risk. Uh, so the idea of de-risking is basically to take your stuff and put some percent of it in India, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, or in rich countries, you know, Japan, Korea, the United States, Taiwan, et cetera. Maybe not Taiwan because it could be blockaded. I don't know. But but essentially to to take stuff, to take some portion of production out of China, put it elsewhere to lessen the existential risk so that even if half of your stuff goes poof, half will not and you'll survive. One of the things that strikes me about the, the extraordinary post that you put up on your Substack uh, earlier this week on all of this, when you explained this new industrial policy, there are so many things that I could talk to you about. First is the extent to which over here in Europe, I don't think the body politic, I don't think policymakers, I don't think the business community 
fully gets what Biden has done with these two acts. I think that uh, it is all so new and so counter many deeply ingrained beliefs, not least the belief that free trade is good and that we must do everything that we can to protect it. And anything that we do that might damage free trade is a bad. The old free trade orthodoxy seems to be much stronger here in Europe, particularly the UK, than it is in the United States. And the narrative that economists or some economists had about the issues that were raised by the consequences of the free trade that you talk about in your article, in in particular, the destruction of uh, jobs that went to China and elsewhere. The first narrow technical question I would ask you is, was it what was the destruction of all those smokestack industry jobs, um, industrial jobs, as much a function of automation as it was going to China? It, that's very difficult to tell because when uh, when China comes here and starts out competing you, one way that you stay alive is to automate. So those things are hopelessly entangled in the data, and we can't really tell the difference. Our general best sort of impression is that up through the early 2010s, automation maybe was half the size of, of China in terms of this, this shock to jobs uh, in terms of from like 2000 to like 2012, for example. Uh, but, but then you run into period periodization issues. Like what period are you talking about? Um, the big China shock is generally reckoned to be uh, the two thousands mainly probably ending in around 2012 or 2013. My bigger question is over the consequences of all of this, the disappearing jobs, which has happened here in Europe as well, particularly the UK, either to automation or to China or to to both. And the consensus, as I understood it, amongst some economists was that all of that at the very macro level was still a good thing. Countries benefited from the free trade, from the globalization, from the rise of China, because we were able to import a whole load of cheaper stuff than we were before, and that what we messed up was the distribution of those gains. I sense from you that you know you, you disagree with that consensus. I don't know, because, you know, it depends on what you care about. So I think that it the lifting of a billion Chinese people out of poverty is such a good thing for the world that I would feel morally bankrupt saying that we should not have done this. At the same time, from a narrowly nationalistic interested national interest perspective, I think that there were a lot of, you know, overall, this was probably a net negative for the United States and probably we'll find out for Europe as well. It not not only destroyed those those smokestack jobs or whatever, but, you know, I think more importantly, what was ultimately more important is that it created a superpower competitor that does not like us and was never prepared to like us. And so national security is what is what is driving these things. Um, if you tell people, well, now your stuff will be slightly more expensive, that carries almost no water. Um, economists, you know, who who do like the IMF recently did estimates of consumer surplus from losses, consumer surplus losses from friend shoring and decoupling or all these things. These are all just like in, valued in dollars. Americans do not think of national security in terms of dollars. And economists do not think about national security, period. And no one's listening to economists. And so this is something that people need to understand. In 2006, a lot of people listened to what economists had to say. And now very few people listen to what economists had to say. During the pandemic, they were completely ignored on environmental stuff and climate tech. They've been completely ignored. And so really very little of what, you know, economists have no influence with either party right now. Uh, the people driving economic policy are are people at think tanks who may have an economist background uh, or may not. 
And so that that is a thing that needs to be understood that no matter what economists think about free trade now, or no matter what their papers or models say, no one's listening to them at all. And does so that, does that worry you? Do, do you think that economists, even though they're not being listened to, still have something to say? That's a very good question. And I'm, I'm going to write about that soon. But I think that economists are fairly behind the curve on thinking about these things. No one has you know, only a very few researchers have bothered to think about industrial policy. And it's all been in the context of developing countries, whether or not, say, Indonesia can get richer faster by by promoting this industry or that industry. Very few economists, if any, have thought about industrial policy at the for rich countries in terms of national security competition and things like that. It's, it is just not a thing that economists have thought of. They're incredibly behind the curve. And if they're smart, they'll scramble to catch up. And if they're not smart, then they'll simply keep doing whatever, you know, retreat into the ivory tower and do whatever useless theory that they're doing that no one cares about or, or just continue to focus on other issues where they do have more clout, like, you know, minimum wage or, you know, some welfare policies on which some people still do listen to economists. But no one's listening to them about trade and about national security and these issues. Am I worried about this? No. Economist, it is incumbent upon economists to do the work that forces me to worry that no one's listening to economists, because so far there's nothing to listen to them about. There are a lot of people in the UK who would listen to you and look at what Biden has done. And you must have seen it's come out of Brussels as well. People complaining like hell about protectionism and subsidies and all of the things that policy over here is geared towards eliminating, trying to reduce barriers to trade. The old-fashioned belief in free trade is good. It may well be simplistic. It may well be over and is not being listened to in the States. But I've got to tell you, no, it's still being listened to over here. There's a big, there's a big mismatch of what people are thinking about on both sides of the Atlantic on this very issue. And I don't think people over here they should read what you've written because it, it's so big and it's so different to the way policy is still thought about here in Europe. Well, right. And I think that for Britain... Global Britain. Uh, Brexit was all about free buccaneering, free trade agreements all around the world. Britain has much bigger problems than the question of protectionism versus or, or industrial policy versus free trade. Britain just has, you know, deep economic problems. It's in a It's in a period of potentially secular stagnation. And I think that while industrial policy might, to some degree, help it out of that, I think that there are probably deeper things that need to happen, including an improvement in the leadership capabilities, because I just saw Britain almost elect Jeremy Corbyn and actually choose Liz Truss as prime minister, who is not only outlasted by a head of lettuce, but probably could be outgoverned by a head of lettuce as well. And she immediately just grabbed onto the most you know, like absolutely dead 1982 level Reaganomics dogma that economists themselves would already have tossed out the window. And so but, but what they my point is what they haven't tossed out is this fundamental belief that they took in with their mother's milk belief in free trade, which you say has just gone from the American agenda. It's gone from the American agenda, but I think Britain has bigger fish to fry. Honestly, the people who need to be thinking about the free trade versus you know, industrial policy kind of thing are primarily in Germany and France right now. Yeah. Those people need to be thinking hard. And of course, that affects Ireland because Ireland is sort of along for the ride in the EU with that, though small. But Britain itself is is going to be a decade digging out from the self-inflicted wounds of Brexit and from the dysfunction of its political class. And I just, 
it's almost daunting to me to tackle the problems of Britain because I just, who's listening in Britain? We have a strange psychodrama in Britain in that what, what we must talk about is anything but the problems. I know. Ah, and then and then when you do talk about the problems, the the vitriol is immediate. No matter which side you take, you can even express a point of view very reasonably and mildly. And the amount of vitriol that people on social media will respond to is akin is just beyond even what you encounter in America, which is already a very high level of vitriol. Let, let me give you an anecdote. When I was younger, I used to really enjoy watching negative British reviews of video games and books. And I would look on YouTube just to find people in a British accent trashing a video game or book. Even if I kind of liked the video game or book, it was just funny to see it get trashed by a person in a British accent because British people were just so good at trashing stuff. Unfortunately, that appears to have been applied as a philosophy of government. No, can I, can I ask you, um, Donald Trump is in Ireland tonight actually visiting his golf resort. I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, I Just looking ahead to the next US presidential election, I mean, how vitriolic is that going to be? How divisive? Very much. Very much. My assessment is that the popular unrest in America has largely peaked. Enthusiasm for street actions, riots, insurrections, fights with your neighbors, running down protesters in a car, among it has intensified among an increasingly shrinking tiny set of people, an ever tinier set of people are going crazier and crazier like they did in the 1970s and will be violent. While the mass of people just think, oh my God, is there anything else I can pay attention to other than this? I've overdosed on this. I don't just want to see people yelling about Donald Trump forever and ever. Please make it go away. I think people obviously have reservations about Biden because of his age, but I think that really very few people, relatively few people in America would like to see a return of Trump and the years of chaos that he brought. And so I think that the 2024 election is a big danger. Uh, but if we, if America can make it past the 2024 election safely without either electing Donald Trump or falling into some sort of constitutional crisis or chaos, I think that you will very rapidly see a a move toward you know social relative amount of social uh, rest or peace or whatever the opposite of unrest is in America, because uh, people are just most people are just so tired of it. And I think you saw this in the late 70s and early 80s. You saw, although there were still some extreme crazies who were blowing stuff up and killing people and tried to kill Gerald Ford twice in one month, you definitely saw this movement of the mass of people of like, oh my God, can we just stop this? And I think you'll see that again, but 2024 is a big hurdle that we have to make it past. This is the last thing I, I will say and leave the concluding remarks and all questions to Jim. But one of the things towards the end of your piece on industrial policy that struck me consistent with what you're just saying about things shifting is that, you know, over here, we assume that America is fundamentally divided, can't agree on anything, and that it's going to be horrible, whoever wins the election. All this industrial policy stuff, with one notable exception, which we won't have time to go into, but most of this industrial policy stuff, one of the jaw-dropping aspects of it that I hadn't fully appreciated is that it's bipartisan. That's right. 
And the entire reason is national security because both Democrats and Republicans have become freaked out by China. Democrats more because they're wedded to labor and they see the smokestack jobs disappearing, but also because they're upset about China's human rights abuses. Republicans because they see a threat to you know Western civilization and power and and whatnot, and also because Republicans increasingly draw their political support from the working class in America, a shift that has happened in the UK as well, I know, with the the working class in general drifting to the right. But they're bipartisan because they both perceive the same threat for some different reasons and some overlapping reasons. And as long as that threat is there, there will be some amount of unity in policy. And that's why these bills, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was not a bipartisan bill. It was passed by only Democrats. And with a with a slim majority, and because the Republicans and Democrats do not see eye to eye on climate change yet, which is unfortunate, in my opinion. They also do not see eye to eye on things like poverty reduction or you know whatever. But they oh, but they definitely see eye to eye on China. It is an amazing unifying force in American politics to watch everybody, and it, and it's scary to a certain extent. I've I've seen even you know sort of national security hawks a little freaked out by the degree to which there has been a sort of unshakable anti-China consensus taking hold within our halls of policy. And I think that that it's a it's a dangerous thing, but it's also it presents opportunities for actually doing getting bipartisan stuff done and building infrastructure and building some of the capacity to to increase industry again, provide broad-based middle-class jobs and things. So it's a it's a danger and an opportunity, this bipartisan consensus about China. Jim, I'll leave the last word to you. In, in 30 seconds, uh, I have a brother living in San Francisco. I visit regularly. And when I travel into the city, I am appalled at what I see. I mean, it, it seems like a city that the whole liberal agenda has really destroyed over the last couple of decades. Am I being harsh? Harsh but fair. I wouldn't say that it's the necessarily the same liberal agenda as you'd find in New York, but I'd, I'd say there are some things that are uniquely bad about San Francisco and dysfunctional and have been that way for a while and are just reaching a breaking point. And I would say that there's other ways in which progressive ideas that are common throughout the country have not helped San Francisco. So I think we're, we are heading for a reckoning. We are heading for a, sort of a, a breakdown in San Francisco over urbanist issues and over how a city can survive and thrive in the modern world. And that breakdown is happening now. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Listen, Noah, on behalf of myself and Chris, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for that. It was fascinating. You've been listening to Noah Smith, um, who has a blog called Noah Opinion. I would strongly recommend uh, people check it out. It's fantastic stuff. And you'll, you'll hear a lot more of what we've been discussing tonight. So Noah, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Noah. All right, thank you very much. It was great. And one thing, is the blog is no opinion with no O in the middle. Okay, and it's a Substack. You can find it on Substack. It is Substack. Please, everybody, sign up. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.